0: Hey listeners, quick note before we get started, you may notice something a little different with my audio and that is because we are giving Anna the best mic for the show on this episode and the next because she is taking point. This one is her baby. And this is really a special couple of episodes because this topic of the Byzantines is near and dear to Anna's heart in a way that only other history geeks will understand, but I'm sure that you're one of them, so I'm sure you do. (laughs) So, I hope you enjoy her passion let loose in these two episodes as much as I did. Alright, let's get started. Today's Dead Idea, this is part two of our series on Byzantine court eunuchs, and today, Anna reminds us that you don't need nuts to carry a big stick. (laughs) (laughs) This is the story of a eunuch military commander, Justinian's right-hand man, Narciss. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, everybody! Thanks for listening. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who is righteously pissed today because she got passed over again for military promotion in favor of a eunuch. <gasps> What's he got that I don't have? She says. <laughs> Actually, women sometimes posed as eunuchs to obtain access to positions to which they were otherwise denied. For example, some were able to become monks in monasteries, not nunneries, monasteries, by posing as eunuchs. Hmm. That was actually a thing. With me once again are my co-hosts for this series, Anna.
1: I think we need to upgrade the system. How about we make it run on eunuchs?
0: <laughs> okay, that was worth it. And Nick.
2: I'll steal my mom joke and mention how after the Ottomans took over from the Byzantines, the model of Linux, the successor system, was Red Hat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No no Fezlov in the audience tonight. (laughs) Oh man, I liked it.
0: So last time we talked about the rise of eunuchs in the late Roman and Byzantine periods, and how they may possibly have come to represent a third gender in Byzantine culture. We focused largely on roles within the imperial household, but eunuchs also fulfilled important duties outside the palace. They were diplomats, they were ambassadors, and they were even military commanders. Now, military command might not be the first thing that comes to mind for us today when we think of eunuchs. It wasn't the first thing that came to mind for Byzantines, either. They had a bit of a prejudice to overcome to be accepted as commanders. A comment often repeated in the literature of the time was, he was skilled for a eunuch. So the atmosphere was perhaps a little bit analogous to women in, say, martial arts today. You know, you punch pretty hard for a girl kind of a thing. (laughs) Nevertheless, time and again in Byzantine history, eunuchs did take command. And one reason might be similar to what we heard last time, loyalty. Eunuchs were disqualified from the throne, not being whole men. And so they could not turn into rivals, uh, since they theoretically had no family ties which was not quite true because they did have families that they could still be in contact with, but they couldn't have issue, right? So they couldn't have heirs. So there's no hope for a dynasty. So that was another reason why they didn't represent rivals to the throne. And so you could trust an army to them without the fear that they were going to take that army and turn it against you. Popular stereotype of Phoenix, all issues, no issue. <laughs>
1: A t-shirt.
0: So in general, it was a safer bet to put a eunuch in charge of your armies than a bearded potential rival. So goes the thought process. Anyway, today, Anna is going to flesh out our picture of eunuchs with the life of one such eunuch general, Emperor Justinian I's right-hand man, Narses. So this is going to be Call of Duty, eunuch command.
1: <laughs> Anna, take it away. <laughs> All right, yeah, I'm in charge of that Military eunuch. Okay, all right. So, picture this: we're casting for a period movie, a sword and sandals flick. It's set in the sixth century, and it's about a general prophesied to bring down the king of Rome. And the working Mm -hmm. title for this flick is going to be "Conqueror of Italy." (laughs) Nice. I love it. I want to. Who are you casting? Just without any descriptions for the title character. Who are you going to cast?
0: I would love to see Arnold Schwarzenegger try to play a eunuch. <laughs> <laughs> he's a big puffy man. <laughs> I just have a hard time not seeing Russell
2: with sword and sandals now. Right, it's kind yeah. of like firmly in my it's mind. Just
1: sort of like the scruffy gravitas, sort of staring off into the middle yeah. distance, looking but you clean
0: know. shaven. Yeah. Not the scruffy testosterone, Right, Yeah, he can't be the old man there, Russell Crowe.
1: Yeah, but, yeah. yeah, he's 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 not exactly looking quite like he's um uh you know Like posing for a statue, exactly. Mm -hmm. Not exactly one of those classical statues. More like Wallace Shawn.
0: Who's Wallace Shawn?
1: (laughs) Um,
2: But first of all, never start a land war in Asia.
0: (laughs) Still don't know.
1: Princess Bride. He was Vizzini. Oh, yeah. um, okay. Is it Vizini? The little guy who uh, does the thing with poisoning and then ends up getting himself poisoned. Uh, inconceivable! Oh, yeah, inconceivable! <laughs> also, the Grand Nagus on Deep Space Nine. Oh, I to... hate him. Oh, yeah, no, he's terrible. That's terrible. Okay. All right, well, this sort of also ties into our discussion. <laughs> um, despite all of what we've just said, this isn't a comedy. The person that we're describing today is one of the most unlikely and amazing people in a period that is literally chalked to the gills full of amazing and unexpected people.
2: A unit. Conquering Italy, inconceivable.
1: <laughs> okay, we found the hook. Nice. Um, this is a time of great geopolitical upheaval. There's riot, there's war, there's new constructions, Wait, and repairs. Wait, when is there not riots in the Byzantine <laughs> okay, Empire? Okay, yeah, let me reply. The most replace famous that. ones are going on now. <laughs> this is one of like the big three. So, like, okay, one of the biggest riots okay. in the Byzantine Empire, and one of the biggest series of wars in the Byzantine Empire, okay. and construction and religious controversy. Okay, yeah, again, religious controversy in the Byzantine Empire, not exactly... Yeah, that's also um,
0: something always going on. Yeah, Monophysites and the... Nestorians. In the, well, the Nestorians <laughs> were completely heretical by that mm-hmm. point, but the Monophysites and the, uh... What was the other one?
2: Uh, just people following
0: the Chalcedonian formula, yeah, the Chalcedonian, I think, is what we thought nice, would be good language. Yeah, because okay. yeah, that's... Yeah, so, the Monophysites and the Eastern Orthodox just the idea yeah, that whether were... would Christ had one nature or two natures, very, very important. The people would win and therefore get to officially call themselves Orthodox. Yeah.
1: There's a lot of religious controversy at any given time, at any point, in the Byzantine history books. Yeah. But this one at least this one at least has something really new and interesting that I don't remember hearing about any other periods. Bubonic okay. Plague. Oh, yeah. 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 There's bubonic plague in
2: the Peloponnesian War, wasn't there?
1: I don't think so. I'm not sure. I was, God, I'm going to have to drag my dad into this. He, right. wrote, he wrote his doctoral thesis on the, identifying the plague of Justinian years before it was ever actually conclusively proved that it was bubonic plague. He was okay. saying, no, it's not measles. Okay. My intro just went to hell because of you dicks. <laughs> All right.
2: Yeah, now you know how it feels. <laughs> what do you mean?
1: Oh, wait. Yeah. God, I'm sorry, Brandon. <laughs> All right. Well, my point is, dicks the Roman Empire is facing threats without and within, and the Emperor needs all the skilled help he can get, especially the help of his most loyal and gifted court eunuch, Narses. Now, obviously we've bungled this entire intro, but to discuss Narses and his achievements and his significance involves understanding the events of a 40-year period in Byzantium's development, which is probably the most talked about amongst historians, and is the best known of the average lay person, even if they're not necessarily familiar with the history of the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, the emperor at this point in history is Pretty much the only one anybody could reliably name-check. It's Justinian, the first. Mm
2: -hmm. The Julius Caesar of Byzantium, if you will. Exactly.
1: Although he probably described himself more as the Augustus of Byzantium in terms of his personal inclinations and scope.
2: No, it's a more fair comparison. I'm just thinking for name recognition. Okay,
1: unfairly or not, Justinian is the standard against which all other emperors of the Eastern Roman Empire will be judged. Anyway, uh, Justinian is a great administrator. He's a great learner. He has a lot of ideas. In 527... Justinian assumes the throne. He's 45 years old when he does. And the next 38 years of his reign are spent trying to remake what's left of the Roman Empire in his image. He takes on massive building projects. He attempts to resolve uh, religious controversies. He reforms the legal code. He puts down riots. He rides out a ton of natural disasters. And he spends a lot of it trying to reclaim the old Roman domains. He marries his longtime mistress, uh, who's a former actress and courtesan, Theodora. She was obviously not of noble birth, and she had a reputation, which, thanks to a certain Procopius, is infamous, but very probably somewhat embellished. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: the yeah. geese? We're not going into the geese story. Not here, goddammit! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> She's about 20 years younger than Justinian. In spite of that, they are basically the perfect power couple. They're both determined. They're both really focused on getting their way. They're not afraid to be the living embodiments of power, and Theodora would be a major influence on her husband's policies and decisions as the years went by, sometimes with great results and a lot of the time not with such great results, Mm -hmm. if history is accurate. Now, we learn lots about Justinian and Theodora, but by contrast, Narses, the guy that this episode is dedicated to, is kind of an enigma. He doesn't really even enter the histories of the time until he's at least 40. And histamists for his year of birth are generally given as 480, but no one's sure.
0: Okay.
1: We don't even know how he became a eunuch. Okay. He is Armenian by birth. He's not of the empire in the traditional way. Mm-hmm. Armenia at this point is a sort of um, sectioned off between the Persian Empire and bits of the Byzantine Empire. And it seems like he was probably his clan, which might have been a royal one was probably under our Persian control and may have rebelled or tried to put some sort of resistance against them, but nothing is known for sure. Procopius keeps referring to him as a Pers-Armenian. I think being okay. a Persian of, uh, Armenian of Persia. He's described, uh, there's a consistent description of him that he's very slight, very frail, um, kind of unassuming, short. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem to have um, put on a lot of weight or anything, at least not in any of the descriptions. He seems like he's sort of a wispy, small person. Mm-hmm. But I've seen um, a picture of him in of somebody who's assumed to be Narses in the mosaics of uh, what was it? San, Went in Ravenna? Yeah,
2: Vitale. Or... Vitale. That's is it, it. San Vitalia? I'm okay. pretty sure
1: it's San Vitale in Ravenna, which is a mosaic of the members of Justinian's court. And there's a man there who's usually said to be Narses, and he looks kind of very old, gray-haired, hangdog expression, and a little bit of a beard actually, sort of in his oh, on his jowls. interesting. Yeah, so if that is Narcissus, it raises a lot of questions on how he became a eunuch. Was he, is he like just sort of naturally impotent, or yeah. what? What's his deal? It's not exactly clear. So he could have
0: been made a eunuch after puberty, yeah. And then,
1: so at the time when he's been described, it's like not exactly, hmm. not exactly like that. So it does bring some questions on how he came to be a eunuch, okay. which is just never really mentioned. Okay, it's also not clear about how he ends up working for Justinian. Most sources agree that while he didn't have lots of formal education, and he had no military background, or any kind of military training, he was whip-smart, he was very adaptable to, to evolving situations, and he was steadfastly loyal, which were a very good cluster of traits, and that kept him alive, and it kept him in the Emperor's good graces.
2: And it's all this sort of stereotypical eunuch cluster, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fit it well,
0: apparently. Yeah.
1: Procopius uh, describes him as a eunuch and guardian of the royal treasures, but for the rest, keen and more energetic than one would be expected of a eunuch. Hmm. So that's an interesting data point right there. Sure. So the first time Narciss really enters uh, the histories is the Nika Riots. also known the Nika
0: Riots. Yeah,
1: here goes goes Brandon's face. It just Uh, creases in (laughs) sort of weird, abstract... Ecstasy.
0: So everybody, uh, if you really want to dig into the Nika riots, check out the History of Byzantium podcast by Robin Pearson, who we will interview later in the series, but he has a really good episode on the Nika riots.
1: I'm looking forward to listen to that, too. Yeah. I hope I just do it credit. But
0: And at this point, Narcisse hasn't yet entered the he picture, but it's all build-up to that. This, this is the right? build-up. Okay.
1: Anyway, to summarize, local politics in Constantinople are a fucking mess. Uh, there are two factions— nominally in charge of keeping the peace on the streets, but they, at this point in time, are acting out of control like militias and severely messing with Justinian's plans. So,
0: so chariot-racing hooligans, essentially. Basically,
1: yeah, exactly. That's, it's like,
0: that's what I love about Byzantine politics, is they don't have, like, Republicans and Democrats. They're referring... they called the Blues and the Greens, but they weren't political parties? They were fan clubs of chariot racing teams, right?
1: Worse, they're, they're fan clubs of chariot racing teams that become political parties. Yeah. Exactly.
0: <laughs> they become politically involved, they become basically that's the parties. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the politics of Glasgow, from what I've heard, but... Well, again, hooligans, <laughs> Yeah, <right>?
2: exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get letters. Yeah. Anyway, as, as you just said, mm-hmm. like much in the arbitrary way that uh, in American politics, red and blue have come to stand for the Republican and the Democratic um, parties in mm-hmm. American politics, much in the same way, Constantinople has two color-coded quasi-political parties known as the Blues and the Greens, which originated in charioteer teams uh, that raced in the Hippodrome, which was just sort of where you had your... Grand spectacle sponsored by the state.
0: I really want a hippodrome someday. Fuck
1: yeah! <laughs> <laughs> um, the Grounds
0: have a hippodrome. You can visit a hippodrome easily. That's true, and it's pretty cool.
1: <laughs> I I like how John Julius Norwich, uh, Julius Norwich, rather sums this up. He he puts it really really succinctly. Quote. Their teams originally referred to the colors worn by the two principal teams of charioteers, but their leaders were by now appointed by the government, who also entrusted them with important defensive duties, uh, responsibilities, including guard duties and the maintaining of the defensive walls. Thus, in all the main cities of the empire, they existed as two semi-political parties, which combined on occasion to form a local militia. At this period... The Blues tended to be the party of the big landowners and the old Greco-Roman aristocracy, while the Greens represented trade, industry, and the civil service. Many members of this last group came from the eastern provinces, where heresy was more widespread. Thus, the Blues had gradually become to be loosely associated with religious orthodoxy, and the Greens with monophysitism. Monophysitism. Interesting. So it is like the
0: conservatives and the liberals Mm. in America. So the Republicans are the Blues,
1: because
0: they're like... The old tradition, right? And yeah. the religious right? Yeah. And then the greens are the uh, the progressive views and the... And, and the heretics. And the heretics,
1: yeah. <laughs> well, except also trade, too. So it's a little... It doesn't quite map on, but yeah, it's a lot. of course it's, it's lot, not going to be perfect. But it's... any one of us would think, oh, yeah, it kind of maps like that. Yeah. So they're also, interestingly enough, the whites and the reds. But they mm. at least long cease to have any particular meaning. They're just the guys who race. And...
0: Yeah. And one of them wants to legalize marijuana. Yeah. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Anyway. There had already been riots under the Emperor Anastasius 20 years prior that had almost resulted in his abdication. So this was serious business. And having tasted power, these factions were not exactly about to give it up. So, 532, things come to a head. Um, Fighting between the factions at a chariot race gets worse than usual. It culminates in a riot and murder. And the ringleaders of the disturbance were um, sentenced to hang, uh, the members of both the Blue Party and both the Green Party. Now, to the embarrassment of the state... Something gets botched. Uh, something goes wrong with the gallows, <laughs> which is a yeah. bunch of people do get hung. But uh-huh. uh, at one point, it's like, oh, whoops, quality control. They, like I think, the, the trapdoor mechanism or, oh. or something just doesn't work. Okay, of uh-huh. Robin Hood, men in tights. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> and two of the condemned men, one of whom is blue and one of whom is a green, escape. And depending on what sources you look to, who you ask, they were either rescued by the crowds. Or they manage to scuttle across the Bosphorus over the Sea of Mamara and get to the Church of St. Lawrence to seek sanctuary. The point is they hole up and become rallying points for both the factions who demand their uh, release and pardon.
2: And the factions are sort of united at this point because they want them both
1: cut out? That's coming. They're both united in wanting their respective guy out. But they
2: don't want
1: the other guys out no 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 except three days after this botched execution shit is really getting wild the blues and the greens start their usual shouting match in the hippodrome which is mostly just yelling nika nika blue nika green nika meaning victory in greek
0: yeah and which they usually shout that as like a cheer yeah. at the chariot races right but yeah it, but at this time both the blues and the greens that are usually at each other's throats are shouting it. They're both shouting it at Justinian, yeah, right? Yeah, huh? they
1: stop yelling it uh, at each other, and they start focusing their attention, basically, on, the, on, on Justinian. Basically S- saying, victory, victory, so victory.
2: It's, yeah, instead of victory to my team, it's momentarily victory to the street.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Which is, which is where Justinian starts to go, oh, shit.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> leave the imperial box to ride this out? Maybe yeah. have a bath? Except, basically, shit goes wild. At this point, both factions forget that they hate each other. They bury the hatchet, if only temporarily, and just start a insane amount of rioting. They proceed to go and fuck the police. They invade the palace <laughs> of the city prefect. They free all the prisoners. They kill anybody who tries to stop them, and a bunch more people who just are there.
0: Don't they burn down the? Hi- oh, they yes, set Sophia? that shit
1: down. They they burn shit down. That's- they burn down the structure. They they burn down the jail. They they burn, they mostly just set fires. I don't think they would really be all like, let's burn this church down. It's more like, let's burn some stuff. Th- oh, right. That's adjacent to the church. You know, oh, it, yeah. it gets fucking nutty. It's, uh, yeah. here. I actually had a part in Procopius that I say it for this. <laughs> uh, let's see. da da Where's the good part with all the burning? Yeah, here we go. Do-da-do. da 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 Eh, fuck it, it's not that good. <laughs> you know, basically, they proceed to just start fires, they yell, they've gotten a taste of power again like they did 20 years ago, and they're like, wait, we can do things! And this is actually um, worrisome at first to everybody, but then the Senate, the the Senate in Constantinople starts to see um, a very useful in. There's now, this like seems like it's coming out of nowhere. Two rival forces just suddenly joining together. But there's some underlying cause for why suddenly the emperor is kind of worried. And uh-huh. it's not just that, you know, these two football hooligans have um, been upset. It's a little more volatile than normal in Constantinople because of some of the reforms that Justinian is sort of working. He's a man with a lot of irons in the fire. He's planning on expanding the Roman Empire to its old glory. He's mm-hmm. got a lot of building plans. He's got a lot of law plans going on. And unfortunately, you need money to do that. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get um, a character called John the Cappadocian coming in. He's the guy who's in charge of raising finances for Justinian. And he's he's you're hard-pressed to find anybody who has a good word for him. The best and most consistent thing they say about him is that he enforces the law scrupulously. They also say he's a raping horrible pig who's got no respect for sanctity and goes after everyone and anyone. But that's not even exactly true because it doesn't seem like he would have actually gone after anybody who was in the poorer classes who didn't have money or the middle class. The people who are complaining about him and writing about being angry are more the senatorial classes, the the landowning classes, the basically the aristocrats because they have money to take. He's not popular with basically the, the faction that would be normally um, associated with the Blues. Mm-hmm. The Senate in particular, senatorial classes, they've been bled dry by John the Cappadocian. It doesn't help that he keeps on employing people with like really terrible um, nicknames like Alexander the Scissors or so-and-so <laughs> leaden jaws. I mean, basically, they, he's putting the screws to them. Uh-huh. And on the other end, you have a guy who's revising uh, Justinian's legal code, rather the legal code of the empire, and his name is Tribonian. He's described as being uh, very genteel, very learned, good at parties. Uh, also, he's an unrepentant pagan, and more to the point, well, John the Cappadocian is... Pagan at
0: this time, meaning he they actually believe in the old Greek gods? Yeah,
1: he's an old... The well, polytheists? Old, old Roman gods, I think, in his case. Okay. Tribonian. Well, um, polytheists, um, in any case. Yeah, not Christian.
0: Right.
1: He's um kind of... He's pleasant, but, but whereas, you know, John the Cappadocian was at least ruthless in enforcing the law mm-hmm. Tribunia just sort of rewrites them uh, when, if anybody slides money his way mm. and this is not great and it pisses off a lot of people and um, not really super great if you have somebody who's really good at law he's, he's sort of like Saul Goodman if Saul Goodman was charming I and not okay this is a terrible so analogy so
0: if I want my insurance company to pay for my roof without hail damage I'm just going to give this guy a bribe and he's going to rewrite the law to make him do it
1: exactly also, that would be a good moment to plug that you need uh, some roof repair. Maybe Yeah, should yeah, go, yeah, this. Come on. go yeah.
0: on me for my roof.
1: Yeah, we're rebuilding the Hagia
0: podcast. Yeah,
1: exactly. So uh, these two people have been really unpopular. People have been resenting them for a while, mostly people uh, in, again, the senatorial classes. And they sort of seize on this. I mean, partially it's an underlying uh, reason for some of them, but also the Senate's like, hey, we can use this, we can leverage this to st- to get these guys dismissed. Which Justinian does, but then, you know, it's building. People are all still rioting. People have tasted power. People are like, fuck this. We can do more. We can do better than Justinian. Because I got to say, Justinian, never very popular as an emperor. I know we, we sort of okay. use him as the the standard by which all future Eastern Roman emperors are, are gauged. But in his mm-hmm. time, he was not glamorous he wasn't especially handsome, he was well-spoken in a sort of halting way because, again, Greek was not his first language. According
0: to Procopius, sometimes his head would disappear. Yes, <laughs> you know,
1: he was might have been sired by a demon, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Um,
0: <laughs> Even in the mosaics, he looks sort of squat and truculent. He kind of looks like Liam Gallagher from uh, Oasis. Yeah, he could have done Okay, okay that's Oasis. worse than anything Procopius ever said <laughs> yeah. about him.
1: But basically, it's, he wasn't a person who fired the imagination, he wasn't glamorous. Theodora was, but again, Theodora was a checkered character with a past that involved oh. you know. Oh. <sighs> I mean, we're not doing the thing with the geese, goddamn you. <laughs> she wasn't exactly liked. She was um kind of a Kardashian, except Ah uh,
0: Right. In, yeah, that, that in, seems liked like in a the worst contest. way. Yeah. Yes,
1: exactly. Mm-hmm. And um between the two, they weren't exactly people that w- that most men on the street would feel inclined to die for. Mm-hmm. Who would have known
2: that Kim and Kanye would go down in history as the greatest emperors of the American Reich?
1: <laughs> Where's my beer? Yes. There's my beer. Kim Hello. Kim and
0: Kanye. Wow.
1: Um, my point is, is that they start to think, we should have an emperor on the throne that we can control. And to this end, they get a nephew of the Emperor of two back, Not Justin, but the old Emperor Anastasius. Okay. This, this elderly nephew is like, named...
2: We ride it during this guy. It was great. We can exactly. do it again.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know what to do. So they get this guy, Hypatius. And they start acclaiming him as Justinian's replacement. And this is kind of awkward. Uh, interestingly enough... <laughs> Hypatius was a backer of the Green Party, despite nominally being a member of the aristocracy and, of course, you know, one of the previous emperors. Okay,
0: and Justinian was a backer of the... Blues. Thought so.
1: Also, complicating this matter, because why should it ever be easy, Theodora, despite her um, father, her birth father being green and also being, you know, a working girl, part of the entertainment class, and Mm -hmm. you'd think would be a green, she was a partisan of the blues... Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. Especially considering that all the evidence suggests she skewed monophysite, which again would be green. Well, it was just
2: sort of a social climbing move to it, it was a
1: social climbing move, but she's also really good at backing the aristocracy. So it's all over the place. You think you have these lines which delineate where everybody is, but then mm-hmm. there's a bunch of jumping. It's almost like it's a crazy ass world and nothing makes sense. <laughs> Anyway. Is
0: that an Oasis lyric?
1: Yes. <laughs> Maybe. You're going to be the one that saves me. And after all, we tore down the Theodosian wall. Anyway. <laughs> so John's baser instincts get him dismissed, at least temporarily. Justinian never seems to dismiss anybody permanently. Same so with tribal. the tribunia. lawyer
0: guy is gone.
1: The lawyer yeah. guy is gone. The money, money raiser guy is gone. Okay. The crowds are still mad. At any rate. The stuff is getting wild. Stuff's getting destroyed. There's a, there's a feeling of real menace and panic creeping in. They've got a rival emperor being acclaimed in the Hippodrome.
2: The champagne supernova in the sky isn't helping matters at all. <laughs> no, it
1: isn't. It's kind of freaking everybody out, especially because no one knows what champagne is. <laughs> um, what happens is basically uh, all Justinian gets together with a bunch of his best advisors, people he trusts, and is sort of debating whether they need to abdicate and run away. Theodora makes a really famous speech, which I'm not going to recount here, but it's really worth mentioning she basically says fuck it i'm a working girl i finally got to the top of the top i'm basically the closest thing to a god on earth you're not telling me i'm going back to nothing if we get killed fine purple makes a great burial shroud the imperial purple
0: yeah that is a good line yeah i could see that like at the end of a movie like pretty woman or something
1: (laughs) i would love nothing less to think who could say that line with conviction it's not it's not kim kardashian um (laughs) Luckily, so Justinian decides after that, you know what, fine, we'll stick it out, because he's. it speaks to him. He's got a lot of eggs in this basket of being emperor. So luckily, he has some of the best generals and minds and commanders on his side. And more importantly, he's got somebody he trusts absolutely. He's got Narcissus. Narcissus! <laughs> Yay,
0: finally. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, get used to it. Byzantine history, there's got to be a prelude to the prelude before anything makes sense. <laughs> Ah, cast of thousands, ten names. Anyway, uh, Narses at this point is a well-regarded member of the administration. He's a palace eunuch, obviously, and he's in charge of that specialty division of eunuch bodyguards, which I think are called Spathrai? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't know either. (laughs) Narses is entrusted by Justinian with a very important but very dangerous task. He's going to have him go to the blue faction's leaders and talk them into abandoning Hypatius. And to this end, he gives him a very large amount of gold to take as a bribe, and then he sends him off alone to the Hippodrome. No no backup. Just that's, alone.
0: That's a lot of trust. Yeah, yeah. to a
1: riding crowd that has already killed thousands. Yeah. In an already volatile city in revolt. Yeah, and that takes a lot of guts, It too. takes nothing yeah, but totally. guts. I would have taken the money and run. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, okay, goodbye.
2: It takes a lot of... Common English phrase that's inappropriate to use in this instance. Well, that's <laughs> exactly. the thing.
1: That's the thing, though. Because Narcissus, he does, he does this. This would be the perfect time to abandon Justinian. He uh-huh. doesn't. He does the most psychotically dangerous thing. And he just goes straight into the Hippodrome, sneaks past. Obviously, you have to be the only one there because if you, you know, uh-huh. are obviously imperial they're going to seize you. So he basically sneaks in, gets to the blue leaders who know him. Anyway, Narses goes straight to the Hippodrome, straight to the murderous crowd. He goes and singles out the leaders of the blues. He proffers the cash that he's been given in cha- exchange for them stopping sup- their support of Hypatius. And he says very shrewdly, you know, this guy you're acclaiming as the emperor, Hypatius, he's historically been a green. So what do you think is going to happen if this goes through, if Justin is deposed, killed, exiled, whatever, and suddenly your emperor is the member of the political faction who's his- who's been your mortal enemy? Do you think that's going to go great for you? You call this off, maybe you will be lenient. Otherwise, you're at the mercy of the people you've historically s- despised. And his words, plus the bribe, kind of help sway the blues leaders into, um, you know get backing towards Justinian's way of thinking. So, in the Hippodrome, they're basically doing the coronation of Hypatius. And in the middle of it, all of a sudden, the leaders of the Blue and most of the rest of the Blue faction suddenly leave the proceedings, which kind of surprises everybody. So, the remainder of the rioters, and especially the Greens, are just sort of like, okay, milling around. And then it comes terribly clear what's going to go on when soldiers arrive at every available entrance. Ouch. Yeah, ouch, in a big way. They find out in a very brutal fashion... What's going on once these Imperial troops start killing everybody in the Hippodrome? And this is pretty fucking awful. Um, 30,000 people get killed.
0: Which, even if inflated, is still going to be a really yeah. horrible yeah.
1: number. Yeah, like way more people than really should have been put to the sword right. in a place where you can't so get out. Or... Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. And Hypatius is dragged off his throne... Possibly, depending on who you ask, by Narcy's de- um detachment of bodyguards, of eunuch bodyguards. Mm-hmm. Justinian is actually inclined to spare him.
0: He has eunuch bodyguards, too? Yeah, yeah. So he's a eunuch surrounded by eunuchs.
1: He's the commander of the eunuch bodyguards. Awesome. Yeah, so he shows up and it's like... Uh, okay, I just realized that this is an audio format, so that <laughs> imperious little snap and point wasn't going to go anywhere.
2: It looked awesome. Well, yeah. Thank
1: you. Thank you. I'm into making gestures, just like a eunuch. Uh, so... <laughs> Again, Justinian's kind of inclined to spare Hypatius. He thinks Hypatius kind of got dragged into it. He doesn't want to kill Anastasius. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have beef with him. Theodora's like, uh, no, we're not doing this. We're not having pretenders pop up. Uh, again, did you get my speech? And has him killed Hypatius. Because,
0: because she was actually co-emperor officially.
1: You know, it various people um, have have their takes on it, but it really seems like she was a lot of power. She had a lot of power. Not behind the throne, but beside it. Yeah. She influenced so much of what Justinian did that it seems seems like that's an accurate read.
2: So, quick side question. How Mm -hmm. common was it for pretenders in Byzantine society to be straight up killed as opposed to mutilated and sent off to a monastery somewhere?
1: See, this is sort of a weird—I get the impression it's kind of a weird changeover from the Roman tendency to just straight up kill your rivals— once you get, sort of get Christianity as an influence, ironically enough, it's more mutilation. You, 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 you It's not right to, to straight up kill somebody. It's the worst possible outcome. So you just basically make sure they're unfit to rule and schlep them off somewhere where you don't have to think about them. You taunt them, send them to a monastery. Yeah, exactly. But that was well,
2: more a later know. thing than this. Well,
1: I get the impression mutilation really took off around the time... Um, Heraclius? Or is it Heraclius? I never, never remember. Sure. i sure. always
2: said Heraclius. But Heraclius yeah, in the next century,
1: right. um, that mutilation and torture becomes more of a thing. In this part, it's sort of, you know, wibbly-wobbly. I think it's a changeover Again, for, a non- for for somewhere where Christianity is mostly the state religion, it's not considered great to murder your rivals, even if it's sometimes considered inevitable. Mm-hmm. So I think probably Justinian would have gone the, you know, castrate and sent to a monastery route. He doesn't seem to have actively hated a whole lot of people. That's the interesting thing. For somebody who is so paranoid about losing his position, he sort of puts up with a lot from people. Just Theodora, not so much. Right. Theodora, kind of remarkably not, if we're believing what people say about it. Mm-hmm. The end of point, the takeaway, is that Narcissus has basically proven that all of the trust put in him is completely justified. He did something insanely dangerous. He risked horrible mutilation, tortured prolonged death, and, you know, also the opportunity to just scarper with a bunch yeah. of money.
0: Had yeah. every reason to betray Justinian.
1: Exactly. And I think, you know, it's, it's funny because it takes an incredible amount of courage to do that. hmm It takes utter conviction and belief in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an amazing data point, because even though we don't get a whole lot of insight into his mind from anybody who's not recounting just the times in general and not Mm -hmm. him specifically, that is an amazing data point as to what his character was. Yeah, Yeah.
2: point, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: So, next bit with uh, Narcisse, Italy. So, something which is super fucking awkward for everybody, the Byzantine Empire, is that despite... Considering themselves Romans, arguably, I would say, being Romans,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they don't actually control the city of Rome outright. Right. Kind of an awkward thing to have on your stationery when people say, oh, so this is printed in Rome? No? Hello? <laughs> the empire, the Roman empire is going strong. Um, it was divided, I forget the exact date, but into a tetrarchy by um, Diocletian. Yeah, basically. it
0: was the one I said last episode. I think it was
1: 324 That sounds right. Something like that. Ish. And, yeah. And then, wait. No that's, no, that's Constantine the Great, though, right? Founded yeah, that's, Byzantium. yeah, Diocletian
0: was a little earlier. Yeah, he was earlier. Okay, well, yeah. around that time.
1: Yeah, basically, the empire was getting very large,
0: mm-hmm.
1: taking it to basically too hard to maintain and too hard to administer. So Diocletian st- uh, started the Tetrarchy, which was mm-hmm. a junior emperor and a senior emperor in the west, a junior emperor and a senior emperor in the east. This worked for I don't know five minutes. Then uh, <laughs> the whole backstabbing parade started, and da 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 da. It worked for long enough for
2: Diocletian to say enough with this shit. I'm going back to my cabbages.
1: Yes, because he was a sensible man. Other than growing cabbages, anyway. If you're a student in basically anywhere in America, you probably don't have a great history curriculum, and what they teach you is that the Roman Empire ends in 476, when the young emperor Romulus Augustulus gets deposed by the Visigoth Odoacer, Mm -hmm. and the entire peninsula gets overrun with Goths, and Mm -hmm. it's fallen to barbarians, and oh god, the terror... And they
2: dance so badly. They dance
1: so badly, the Goths just sort of sway back and forth, and um... Their
2: eyeliner is really not good.
1: (laughs) This is inaccurate on many levels. The first off their eyeliner is on point. The second one (laughs) is that it's a little more complicated than that. Um, The Visigoths get forced out by a different... Okay. First clarification, goths are just a term we used to describe a certain uh, tribe or series of tribes of Germanic peoples mm-hmm. who, as a result of the whole weird uh, succession of barbarian peoples getting mm-hmm. sort of knocked around like one of those executive toys with the balls where you, you know, drop <laughs> it on one end and, yeah, and, and whoever's on the end yeah. gets kicked out further. They were basically looking for a new homeland, a place to exist and live in. Just somewhere to settle in. They yeah. were they were pretty amenable to a lot of aspects of Roman law, other than also wanting to govern themselves.
2: There were divisions. Some of them were more into sort of early post-punk. Others went dark wave. Some of them, the more <laughs> later ones mostly listened to black metal. Yes, which but...
1: explains a lot of the complicated feelings the Byzantines had towards them. Byzantines <laughs> were strongly shoegaze. Um, at any rate... The Visigoths go in, they sort of <laughs> take over the Roman peninsula, and then the uh, emperor at the time, who's known as Zeno, is like, okay, this is a problem. Hey, you guys, the Ostrogoths, these other Gothic peoples, why don't you come in and sort of, you know, check out the Visigoths, and then you can rule Rome in our name. And basically, the leader of the Ostrogoths says, okay. Goes in, kicks out the Visigoths, and controls the peninsula of Italy nominally in the name of the Roman Empire. They mint money with the visage of the emperor in it. They enforce aspects of Roman civil and legal law, although they also have their own separate law, and the armies are strictly Ostrogothic, meaning East Goth.
0: Right, Visigoth means West Goth, right.
1: Exactly. And... It's awkward because, in some respects, it's good. You have people who are at least paying lip service to the the empire who are sort of giving it some money. But you have Rome, which is this big deal. It's your city. You're named after the Roman Empire. These are all of your ancestral lands, which strike large in your imagination, even if you weren't born there, even if you're a Thracian peasant or a Greek speaker. And these barbarians are camping out here, and it's awkward.
2: Also, to an extent... From the Byzantine point of view, even if your own city is fraught with sort of strife and rivalries between Monophysites and people that accept the Chalcedonian formula and what have you, everybody agrees that the Goths, well, Christians, are damn heretics. Well, they're
1: Aryans. are they're, they're, heretics. Uh, not Aryan in the sort of unfortunate other re- aspect that we consider Germans, but in the sense that they followed the teachings of Arius who... Yeah,
0: different spelling. Yeah.
1: yeah. Who was... Yeah.
2: Very, very popular and looked like he might win the day when the Goths were showing up and has largely vanished from everything except the German-speaking That's world, a whole other well, dead right? idea that we yeah. can go into
0: sometime. It'll be very interesting, and I do not get it. <laughs> you gotta get me <laughs> way more anyway. drunk. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like fucking... Anyway. Yeah. Okay, so Italy, basically,
0: but...
2: It's another sort of otherizing. It is. it is. We all think these are heretics and they're in charge of our sacred homeland.
1: Right. Exactly. We can all agree
0: yeah. that they need to get out. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. exactly. So because of this weird and embarrassing eng- ar- arrangement, emperors in Constantinople don't really have a good pretext for demanding the return of Italy, not to mention it's kind of hard to actually have a leg to stand on. Luckily for them, and unluckily for everybody else, 535, nine years into the reign of Justinian, the regent for the deceased Gothic king Theodoric. His daughter Amalcintha gets killed by her cousin.
0: I love the name Amalcintha. Amalcintha.
1: <laughs> they just sort of get a slow motion thing. Her hair goes back. I know, yes, right? You know.
0: Like kind of a wispy, um, diaphanous scarf. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's a little glitter and tragic. Anyway, she gets <laughs> she gets killed by her cousin. If no
2: one signs up for the Patreon and asks to be drawn as Amalcintha as Brandon's fantasy Amalyntha. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna be. Severely disappointed. <laughs> All right.
1: Anyway, she's previously appealed to Justinian for help. She's like, okay, my position's a little precarious here. And she was raised um, alongside. She was raised in a bit of a Roman tradition, though, despite being a, a Goth. Mm-hmm. She's sympathetic to um, a lot of the senatorial and aristocratic classes in Italy. She's a proponent of a lot of Roman law, despite you know also trying to raise her son to be the next Gothic king. This is what gets her killed, incidentally. Her sympathy towards. Um, that that unusual succession things, and because she's appealed to Justinian for help, he has now a useful pretext for reinvading Italy, as an attempt to avenge her and to reinstate the. Well, actually, her son is dead, so that doesn't work. But you know, it's 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 the the weapons of mass destruction basically to go back to Italy.
0: <laughs> okay. Yep. The, main.
1: the exactly the line the yellow cake. Um,
0: the causa Belli. The
1: ooh. The Gulf that's of Tonkin. Topical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's wants to get the old homeland back and he's got he needs proven and reliable hands for this. Luckily, he has Belisarius. Um Belisarius is the man he picks to win his Italian wars.
0: I love Belisarius because he's such a capable commander and nobody listens to him
1: exactly he's like ripley in aliens he's like this is a terrible idea why are you doing this holy shit garmin why burke what are you doing it's just like he gets no respect no no one listens
0: rodney dangerfield
1: no and he's a good commander he's a good really intuitive commander and unfortunately there's a reason for why he doesn't get a lot of respect at least not in the Gothic campaign, he's already had success. He's uh, been sent against the Persians and against the Vandals in North Africa, and he's proven himself on the field. He's uh, very popular in Constantinople for this reason. He is an able general, smart, decisive, uh, a little bit unorthodox, but he gets results.
2: Mm-hmm. Like, like a maverick. Like, yeah. like yeah. Officer from you know, a fuzzy face.
1: Exactly from BoJack Horseman, for whom Wallace Shawn <laughs> has also done a voice as himself. <laughs> just tying it all together, the singularity is happening. <laughs> Um, he's also younger than uh, the Emperor. He's sort of glamorous. He has an air of manly competence, which Justinian, who looks kind of like a plastics controller on his best day, doesn't necessarily have. He's tall. He's tall. He's virile. Um, he has
0: the word Bella in his name. Yeah,
1: mm. which is, like, okay.
0: And the mosaic I saw, he has a really nice beard. Yeah, he does, yeah. He he does. He's a good looking
1: guy. He's, yeah. a, he's, a, he's, a, he's opposed to, again, Justinian or even Narcissus. Yeah. So, um... He's focused, he's bold, he's capable of decisive action, he's the person you want to retake the Italian peninsula.
2: The leading man of the campaign. The
1: leading man, the one you think the movie's going to be about. Uh-huh. But the problem is, Justinian, in spite of all this, has absolute faith in his abilities, but not necessarily his intentions. Or more accurately, he might, Theodora doesn't. Theodora's Really, um, after this debacle with Hypatius being claimed, is super locking down any conduits to both Justinian and also anything that might lead to anybody else getting into power. She's super paranoid. She came from nothing. She's, again, at the top, and she's going to make sure she stays there. And with with Justinian, too. Okay,
0: so Theodora is getting paranoid about Belisarius. Yeah, she's
1: like, this guy's sexy, he's hot, he's good at things, people like him. Again, Justinian on the best day, that's your average a bad person. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. And there is an unfortunate that's tendency. me, but yeah, yeah. I <laughs> except should that no one,
2: except that no one likes me.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so she
2: starts to rap beef with him, and... basically
1: again, uh-huh. Kardashians. Except the worst part again being Belisarius never really seems to ever have any evidence of trying to want the throne for himself. He seems like he's very loyal to Justinian, as a matter of fact. Added complication: Antonina, his wife, who's also an older woman.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's like thirty-three. Is Theodora's best friend, or at least a friend of hers, or at least somebody she knows. She was also a working girl, sort of actress. Okay. And in spite of you think they'd be, you know, fighting besties. with each other as a result? But no, oh. Theodora and Antonina are totally in and, and with each other, and they are besties. Yeah, and and okay. Theodora actually uses Antonina to monitor Belisarius, to occasionally work against him, and to report to her. Oh. So got it. the plot thickens. At any rate. Belisarius is picked to win the Gothic Wars, and the first phase to regain Italy from the Goths sees the Byzantine Empire successfully retake the province of Dalmatia, which is the east of Italy in present-day Croatia.
2: Mm -hmm. Adriatic coast.
1: Yeah. Not the east
2: of Italy, but east of Italy. Across the Adriatic. Yeah,
1: I should probably... Where's Wales? It's the west, right? (laughs) Yeah, I, I I have problems with maps. Cro- um,
2: What's now Croatia?
1: Never eat soggy wiener Right.
2: Didn't win the World Cup. Didn't win the Dalmatians.
1: No. Anyway, he takes the land of the spotted dogs, and then in Sicily, <laughs> Cittaly, in Sicily, and by 537, Belisarius has managed to besiege and capture Naples and Rome. And then it's about the time where Narses gets sent in by Yay, Justinian. Narcys. Yay, Narses! Yay, Remember that guy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is the part where yeah, i gonna
0: do that every time. Yay, yeah,
1: Narcys. Yay, Narcys. good. <laughs> good. He had sent over because Justinian's like, okay, this is going great, maybe a little too great. There's an unfortunate tendency in Roman history for successful generals to um, get acclaimed as emperors while they're out on Mm -hmm. the field. Suddenly somebody gets a purple robe and some boots and they get lifted on their shields and all of a sudden you've got a new emperor marching on your capital with an army.
0: Which sometimes works, Julius Caesar, sometimes Mm -hmm. doesn't everybody else
1: basically (laughs) it's it's a problem and you don't want pretenders running around and especially not after you've almost been dethroned so he sends narses out with reinforcements but also to keep an eye on belisarius 537 belisarius has managed to uh, besiege and capture naples and rome narses shows up and to quote procopius at this time it was reported to belisarius that narses had come with a great army from byzantium and was in pisceanum now, this Narses was a eunuch and guardian of the royal treasures, but for the rest, keen and more energetic than would be expected of a eunuch. Yay, Narses! Yay, Yay Narses! And 5,000 soldiers followed him, of whom the several detachments were commanded by different men, blah, 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 blah. And also 2,000 of the Aurelian nation also followed him, the which Aurelians. Was
0: also... Okay, you're gonna go in. Yeah,
1: I'm one. gonna. I'm yeah. gonna. Oh, I'm <laughs> gonna. Because Procopius has a lot of things to say about Aurelians, mostly about how they're ger- another Germanic group, which makes no sense to him and changes his, their minds every goddamn... Th- 15 minutes Uh and also according to him has sex with goats or donkeys
0: yeah perceptions of other cultures are really fun yeah Mm -hmm.
1: comparative cultures the procopius um has some feelings about them but the interesting thing is the Aurelians really seem to dig Narcissus, even though he's the slight unassuming little unit guy who probably does not look like arnold schwarzenegger or even russell Crowe. but does he
0: look like a goat
1: that might oh god well this got dark didn't it
0: (laughs) But also, more to the point, uh, Germanic peoples, they did not employ eunuchs and probably saw eunuchs as weird?
1: Weird, or effeminate, or bizarre, but or suspect. Small,
0: wispy beard, I mean... Yeah, I mean... Like a goat.
1: Like, yeah, yeah.
2: Right. So, very attractive.
1: Or alternate, well, or alternately, oh, you're funny little man, I like you. <laughs> or both. Yeah. Yeah, but this is where things start to get complicated, Um, because, again, a fr- he's a... Fr- Justinian's afraid of Belisarius's proven history of wins, even as he's relying on it. Mm-hmm. So Narses, when he arrives with troops and backup, also arrives with a secret directive that sort of becomes less of a secret as time goes by. Our boy Narses is basically given the go-ahead to undercut Belisarius' tactics and authority as he sees fit. Oh, it was
0: intentional? I didn't know it that It seems part. like it
1: was largely intentional.
0: Wow. People
1: ascribe a lot of different motivations to it, but it seems like it's like okay, Narses I can trust to sort of retake the rest of the peninsula, take me over from Belisarius, and more critically, you know, keeping him from getting too big for his britches. And this, this is, is... such th- an interesting
0: facet of autocratic cultures, where you can, like, fail by succeeding.
1: Yeah! You know? It's really interesting and kind of heartbreaking after a while. Yeah. But basically, um, Narses is given, like, well, I'll, I'll describe it further. The first instance of all of this problem brewing is the siege of Ariminium which is modern-day Rimini in northern Italy. Ariminum is currently held by Byzantine forces under a commander named John, the nephew of Vitalian, who is possibly the stupidest recurring character in this whole fucking series. He is... Well, I'll get into that later. So, John is a dumbass. There's no way of saying this nicely. And he's going to okay. come up again and again tripping on his shoes and spilling this maple is, syrup down the register of the... This two.
0: is totally different from the John from the Nico revolt, right?
1: John, the nephew of Vitalian. Okay. And John, uh, well, John okay. the
0: nephew. We'll call him John, John the nephew.
1: Dumb John. I would. I would okay, also Dumb call John. It. John the dumbass. Um, he has been holding up in Rimini. This is really bad. You've played Civilization, right, you guys? Oh, I'm mm-hmm. a huge fan. Would you use cavalry units as a defensive unit in a city unless you had no other options? No, they do nothing. Why don't they do anything? Do you have a <laughs> thought why that's the case?
0: Uh, maybe because they can't charge from the walls? Mm-hmm. Congratulations,
1: <laughs> you're smarter than fucking John here. He's, he's, this is also a complication. Cavalry units are the prestige units of how this war is fought. And most commanders of their to day... Be, to be fair, yeah.
0: the Byzantines had cavalry cataphracts, heavily armored horsemen, and that was like their thing. Yeah,
1: no, that so is thing. So it makes sense,
0: right? That's yeah. the prestige special... To keep it the civ theme, that's their unique unit, right? But here, he's like, he doesn't understand how to use them strategically.
1: That's kind of the case. It's like, there's a certain degree of contempt for infantry and non-mounted cavalry that sort of seems to be shared by a lot of the um, Roman commanders. Mm -hmm. And um, Belisarius is like, hey, uh, John, can you please quick just send me these uh, cavalry units? I have to use them for something and uh, maybe just, you know, fortify the town. John, for whatever reason, says, "Eh, no. And what happens is, is that Ramini gets besieged. Uh-huh. Um, how well do you think the cavalry does fighting off Goths from uh, inside of a
0: city? So... I so mean... what you'd want is catapults or archers. But if you're going to use your cavalry, you have to open the gates, you have to send your cavalry out, and then... Goths are also really good at cavalry. Really right? good,
1: yes. Pretty great, actually.
0: <laughs> in Civ terms, they just be barbarian units, though. So you can mop yeah. them up easy, no
2: matter what. Well, uh,
1: apparently <laughs> somebody's been tweaking the um, yeah specifications of okay. this mod. I yeah. feel like we should have like Andre just come in to do a, a Grandmaster Mo thing about <laughs> yelling at John about why this is the dumbest way to fortify a city. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then
0: shout out to our Moeism series. Oh yes. hell
1: yeah! So basically, um. The ca- the cavalry gets fucked up big time, mm-hmm. and they still manage to maintain the city, but they're basically hold up. It's siege time now, and... Um, yeah, at least you can eat horses. What?
2: At least you can eat horses. Well, yeah,
1: but then you don't have the horses, and if you didn't have <laughs> I any mean, horses to start infantry. up with... yeah. <laughs> so, when Narses arrives on the scene, Belisarius and the other commanders are discussing what to do. Uh, the big problem is, is not only are the Goths besieging Rimini... There are also, uh, there's a second army on the move only 200 miles north of Rome. And most of the commanders at this meeting are like, fuck John, he's an idiot. He's a dumbass. He shouldn't have done this. We have other things to worry about. Narses, by contrast, is, believe it or not, a friend of John's okay. from the way back. Uh, he might have learned military tactics from John, actually. Which is kind of weird, considering that Narses is a pretty good tactician, as it turns out. And I think you could induce John to turn out, like... A bucket of wee on his face by telling him that the instructions were... Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly. Maybe he learned what not to do from John. Exactly,
0: that's what I was going to say. He learned what not to do.
1: Okay, so, Procopius. Now, the majority of the commanders were hostile towards John and made their speeches accordingly, and the charge brought against him was that he had been moved by unreasoning, daring, and a desire to gain great sums of money to place himself in his current dangerous position... Blah, 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 But then Narcis speaks, and he says, fellow officers, you are not debating a question of the customary sort, but in circumstances where, you know what? I'm not going to do this whole quote. I'm going to do this over again. <laughs> Basically, according to Procopius, Darcy's makes a really good case for going to the rescue of Arminium. He says, look, this is a major strategic outpost. Granted, this is an awkward situation, but if we don't relieve it, the Goths will be pillaging this whole region, of which is called Emilia. They'll be making inroads we should concentrate on rescuing John. And he makes it very convincingly, and in spite of himself and his inclination not to do it, Belisarius agrees. It's a good speech. I would quote it in its entirety, but... And it's rather eloquent, actually. It's well-spoken. But essentially, he turns the tide. He's like, everybody... Narcissus. The, does. Narciss turns the tide in favor of rescuing John. This turns into a bit of a debate, actually, and then it's sort of neatly settled by... A letter arriving from the presiege, John, basically informed Belisarius that, um, this is our city, is kind of totally running out of supplies and rations and stuff, and if you don't come and bail me out in seven days, I'm gonna have to surrender. Belisarius grinds his teeth and says, fine. And they go, they, um, advance in Arminium, and they... He divides the army into thirds and advances, and Vitiges, who is the, the Gothic leader at this time, is so spooked by you know the arrival of reinforcements that he actually returns to the uh, current Gothic stronghold of Ravenna, where their nominal capital is, and just completely abandons the siege. Hmm. So it's a show of force, it's a decisive quick action, and it gets results. And um, Quoting Procopius. Uh-huh. And when Belisarius saw John and his, his men pale and dreadfully emaciated, he said to him, owing at the rashness of his audacious deed, that he owed a debt of gratitude to Ildiger, who is the commander who liberated Arminium and saved John. But John said that he recognized no obli- his obligation not to Ildegar, but to Narses, the emperor's steward, implying, I suppose, that Belisarius had not come to his defense very willingly, but only after being persuaded by Narses. Yay, so he Narses. Gives, he gives
0: props. Yeah, he does.
1: But this has an unintended consequence, or maybe more accurately, an intended consequence. From that time on, both these men, that is to say Narses and Belisarius, begin to regard each other with great suspicion. Mm. It was for this reason that the friends of Narses even tried to prevent him from marching with Belisarius, and they sought to shew him how disgraceful it was for one who shared the secrets of the emperor, not to be commander-in-chief of the army, but to take orders from a mere general.
0: See... I love that, mm-hmm. yeah, because that more than anything illustrates the difference in status between someone as high up as a fucking general, yeah, but a eunuch, a eunuch. is yeah. still so much higher than that.
1: A eunuch with the emperor's ear. It's yeah. it's yeah. just like that thing you were saying saying with Andrew. Basically, it's like. I outrank you on a level that you don't understand. I am basically the holiest of holies as far as uh-huh. Justinian's concerned. Yeah. And this, unfortunately, is kind of the thing which uh, starts to throw a wrench into the rest of the Gothic, the first part of the Gothic campaign. Belisarius and Narses are now sort of at loggerheads. Mm-hmm. They fall into a heated debate on the relative merits of splitting the army. Belisarius wants to mount a two pronged attack on the Goths, attacking their uh, garrison in the nearby stronghold of Oximum because he wants to put pressure on Vitiges's rear, and also in the process also relieve the city of Milan, which is currently being besieged by Goths. Narciss doesn't like this idea of splitting the army, and he counterproposes that they concentrate their efforts against the main stronghold in Ravenna, saying that anything less than a unified Roman army could easily mean getting hammered by barbarians on both sides. <laughs> the way that Narciss phrases this, though, is basically, hey, dude, you can do whatever what, what you want with whatever commanders choose to follow you, but I'm going to take whoever follows me or feels like coming with me and just do my thing. And the problem is, is that a lot of people by this point are switching their loyalties to Narcissus. They're like, he's the Emperor's steward. He got great results here at Araminum He's uh, obviously got some secret directive. And Belisarius looks like he's kind of in decline at the moment. So suddenly, Belisarius is like, "Oh, uh, where's all my support? And he says, no, splitting the army like that is a t- into a bunch of uh, small groups with competing ideas of what to do is a terrible idea. Yeah, you don't split
0: the party. That's you do split the party. That's exactly. how you
1: get killed. In a- <laughs> anyway, and the worst part is, is that um, they they actually do get into a shouting match about this. J- Belisarius even drags out the letter from Justinian in an attempt to smack Narciss down saying... Uh, Oh, he's basically saying the message, quoting it at him. We have not sent our steward Narses to Italy in order to command the army, for we wish Belisarius alone to command the whole army in whatever manner seems to him to be best, and it is the duty of all you who follow him in the interest of the state. Such was the purport of the emperor's letter. But Narses, laying hold of the final words of the letter, declared that Belisarius at the present time was laying plans contrary to the interest of the state. And for this reason, he said, it was unnecessary for him to follow him. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah he's basically uh, getting interpreting loophole. Duty here. Yeah. loophole to the extreme so eventually this kind of gets bad really fast Narciss undercuts his efforts bad things continue to happen uh The wars in Italy are depriving the peninsula of manpower for harvesting grain. Also, the armies are consuming a lot of food, and if you kill off big chunks of your civilian um, population, no one's bringing in the harvest. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of getting bad fast, and, uh, on top of all of this, a new hostile force, some very different East Germanic tribes, called the Franks, show up and just start fucking around, uh, crossing over the Alps and basically dismaying everybody, including the Goths, who they sort of break allegiances with willy-nilly. It's, they're not great, these guys. So, uh, Fucking weirdness goes on, and uh, the Franks show up and join up with this Gothic army to besiege Milan, which at this point in history is the second biggest uh, s- city in all of Italy after Rome. Now, uh, also Belis- this point
2: in history, I believe.
1: Well, okay, that's also an interesting point. Belisarius, a year before, had stationed a military garrison in the area, but now they're running low on supplies, and Belisarius responds to their request for for relief by dispatching a rescue force. But this rescue force drags their heels and gets all, you know, reluctant about crossing the River Po because they're afraid the Goths were going to ambush them there. So you have this rescue force, literally only one day's travel from Milan, just kicking it while the city starves. And this pisses Belisarius off, especially when the rescue force whines that it's only going to move if it gets backup support from the commanders John and Justinius. One of them is the fuck-up John. John John the idiot, yeah.
0: Yeah, dumbass John.
1: Who are both nearby. Okay, says Belisarius. And he orders John and Justinian to help them out with a rescue. But these guys say, no, we're not going to give the order unless Narses tells us to. And Belisarius, who at this point must just have a permanent bald spot where he's tearing out his hair, writes to Narses trying to convey that his half of the armies have been dicking around pointlessly in Emilia with all, without, while ignoring its major city, the capture of which would convey a much greater strategic advantage. Narses decides, yeah, okay. And he sends fuckboy John to go get boats from the seacoast to help the armies cross the river in a pontoon boat. John, in his usual manner, promptly gets sick and delays <laughs> bringing the boats. I guess he ate some bad... Shellfish? Shellfish. Um. So this means losing even more valuable time and what happens is uh, basically people in um uh, basically in Milan are starving they're forced to eat mice the food is running out they're starving they're horrific they're eating dogs they're possibly reverting to cannibalism based on who you're listening to and uh the the person inside who's in charge of the roman em- uh, command is like okay, we have to negotiate with the barbarians. Please say that you'll let us go and that you'll spare the inhabitants of the town from the siege. The barbarians say, no, we'll let the Rom- you, the Roman garrison, go, but we're basically putting everybody to the sword. The Roman commander, to his great credit, tries to rally his uh, men to do a last noble charge so they don't bone the citizens of Milan. His people, his guys are like, no, let's just leave. So they leave. And a lot of people get put to the sword. It's horrific. A starving populace is basically subjected to the entire horrors of, you know, what happens you break a siege and a bunch of barbarians are pissed at you. And in 539, they pull out of Milan, and it's really nasty, and people get cut up and fed to dogs, blah, blah, blah. And uh, there's no repercussions for anybody who dragged their heels on the rescue mission, basically. Uh, the worst thing that happens...
0: So, John. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. John basically is like, well, I had the runs. <laughs> and this is it didn't a major... make you
0: faster did it john no it didn't
1: <laughs> so this is kind of a low point in the first part of the roman uh reconquest of 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 rome it's a lot of good work undone. They lose a major strategic strong point, And about 300,000 or so are dead in the biggest Italian cities. Justinian doesn't actually punish Nazis at all. He's like, you know, maybe this is working a little too well. Why don't you come back to Constantinople? He does, but even this ends up fucking things up because the Aurelian mercenaries mm-hmm. that are under him, the Germans, yeah. like, well, no, we came here with Nazis. We leave with Nazis. And then they go and do crazy german things and eventually repent and go back to Constantinople, saying we're oh, sorry we're friends of the empire but by then the wars dragged on and those were people who
0: uh-huh. justinian
1: could have used uh rather more accurately Belisarius could have used so that's uh Narcy's first jaunt into italy but he comes back under better circumstances
0: wow so okay, there's a roller coaster ride from Narcis, just like getting everything right so towards the end there he's just kind of like being a real pain in the ass, huh?
1: yeah, he um, there's a learning curve to this
0: <laughs> and in this time it's going down. yeah,
1: but it goes back up. this is a two part movie. This is right. the middle part of the movie.
0: So we will be back next time with the conclusion of uh Narsi's big adventure here. <laughs> <laughs> uh Bannon will be back to to tell us what happens in the the rest of the career of our military commander Narcis. So everybody, check it out next time. I'll be back in two weeks for that. Thank you, Anna and Nick, for being on the show.
1: Thanks for letting me yell yeah. and get spittle all over this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'll clean up my MacBook later. Yeah. <laughs> I've been here Great this Great show by now. Way. So <laughs> <laughs> So everybody, if you like what we're doing, let us know. Let Anna know if you love her style of telling history because I was loving it. I digging it. So also if you want to support us, you can at Patreon. Uh, Throw us five bucks a month and you get your portrait drawn as whatever the F you want. Do you want to be drawn as John the Dumbass? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but you could be a badass general <laughs> like fucking Narcissus. Narcissus. So,
1: yeah.
2: Also, so. remember, if the roof on this place comes down, we won't be able to report
0: podcasts. So
1: Yes, and we don't have a John oh, yeah. the Cappadocian ourselves, so... Yeah, we
0: need somebody to rewrite insurance laws. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. donate 15 grand. Yeah, you know. yeah. One of the two. Um, okay, that's it for this time. Uh, we'll see you next week. at BT Newber again. This is Dead Ideas.